your Bibles to Numbers chapter 7. Today, continuing our study through this Old Testament book, and uh, you will notice immediately that our text is long today. Numbers chapter 7 and 8, and as we look at this, just uh, an indication at the beginning, we are not going to read this entire passage. We're going to break in the middle. We're going to read together verses 1 through 11 of chapter 7, and then we're going to jump from verse 11 and pick up in verse 84. The question is, what are we skipping? What we are skipping is a list, an itemized list of offerings that were given by each of the tribes of Israel on 12 consecutive days. All of those offerings are summarized in verses 84 to 88. So we're going to hear about them. We're not going to go through the itemized list. I encourage you to read those later. It will name. Each one follows the same format. It will name the tribal chiefs that we saw earlier in the book of Numbers and then tell what they gave to the Lord uh, and, uh, and on these uh, successive days of offering. And then after uh, verse 84, we will read to the end of chapter 8. So, uh, a long passage today. Uh, Let's go to the Lord together and pray for his blessing as we read and study it together. Let's pray. O gracious God and Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would give your Holy Spirit that we might hear it, that we might pay attention to it. Help us, Lord, not to get lost in, in the details, but to see through those details the message that you have for us, Uh, about what it means to come to you, uh, to give to you, and to receive from you, to find fellowship with you. Help us, O Lord, uh, to learn from your word what it means to follow Christ and to love you and to be your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it, Numbers chapter 7 and 8. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings, and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their fathers' houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes who were over those who were listed, approached, and brought their offering before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs, and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. Now jump down to verse 84. This was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed. From the chiefs of Israel, twelve silver plates, twelve silver basins, twelve golden dishes, each silver plate weighing 130 shekels and each basin 70, 
all the silver of the vessels, 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The 12 golden dishes full of incense, weighing 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, all the gold of the dishes being 120 shekels. All the cattle for the burnt offering, 12 bulls, 12 rams, 12 male lambs a year old with their grain offering, and 12 male goats for a sin offering. And all the cattle for the sacrifice of peace offerings, 24 bulls, the rams 60, the male goats 60, the male lambs a year old 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand. Hammered work of gold, from its base to its flowers, it was hammered work. According to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to cleanse them, sprinkle the water of purification on them, and let them go with a razor over all their body, and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Then let them take a bull from the herd and its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, and you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering. You shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting, and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls. And you shall offer one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites." And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons, and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn from among the people of Israel. And I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel to the Levites. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, the people of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. 
And after that, the Levites went in to do their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duties. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, you may be aware that, uh, that Jonathan Edwards is generally known, uh, typically known, for uh, two things. On the one hand, uh, Jonathan Edwards is known for having one of the sharpest theological minds to ever emerge from American Christianity. And on the other hand, he is known as one of the least impressive preachers you could ever encounter. Uh, one historian said that uh, Edwards delivered his sermons, he said, in a monotone with his eyes never straying from the back of the church. Another said a heavy dependence on his manuscript prevented any rapport with his congregation. Uh, even John Gerstner. Gerstner was a lover of Edwards, uh, but he had this to say. He said, from the standpoint of delivery, he possibly was one of the most mediocre preachers the church has ever known. Now, I guess if all you knew about Jonathan Edwards uh, was the way that his preaching style is remembered, you might never understand the impact that he had on the people that heard him. If all you knew of Jonathan Edwards' preaching was some dusty old manuscript of sinners in the hands of an angry God, you probably would not be able to fathom today why the people who heard him preach it shrieked and cried out and wept their way through the whole thing. You might wonder why he had to stop a few times during the preaching of that sermon so the congregation could regain its composure so he could continue preaching the doctrine of God. Worship often happens that way. From the outside, especially among those who have never experienced it, it appears outwardly unimpressive. Think about the high points of your worshiping life. Think about the conferences. Think about the retreats. Think about the summer camps. Think about the sermons that have shaped the way that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. How would you explain that worship service or that experience of worship to somebody who's never been there, who's never known it? You might, you might try to reduce it to just the things that you did or the songs that you sang. You might say, well, on the first day of the conference, we got together and we all sang some hymns, and then Joel Beakey came and he preached this sermon, and it changed the way that I think about prayer ever since. And then on the second day, well, Sinclair Ferguson was there, and by the time he was done, there wasn't a dry eye in the congregation. And those who have experienced something like it, well, they'll get it. But those who haven't, they'll probably never understand. And when it's over, how do you convey the joy and the rapture and, and the glory that it is to be in God's presence in worship to somebody who's never tasted it? Let me suggest that if you were an Israelite in the desert, you would probably talk about 12 consecutive days 
of offerings. If you were an Israelite in the desert and you wanted to convey the majesty of worship, you would probably talk about things like the smoke of a sacrifice and the laying on of hands. You might talk about ritual cleansing and about atonement that God spoke to Moses from the ark in the holy place. As we examine these chapters and numbers, we need to see them for what they are. Not just a list. They're worship. That's what these chapters are. They are heartfelt. They are God-focused. They are life-changing worship. Nearly two full weeks of rejoicing in the presence of God. These chapters are worship, and they are recorded so that we would know something of the joy that worship involves. They don't tell us everything we want to know about worship, what we're supposed to do in worship, or what it looks like, or what it feels like. These chapters do highlight a few important things that we ought not to miss. The first has to do with our giving. That's the obvious focus of chapter 7. It reads like this one-way stream of contributions. First the wagons and the oxen, and then the bowls and the basins, the cups and the sacrifices. Behind Psalm 119, Numbers chapter 7 is, verse by verse, the second longest chapter in the Bible. And it's a list. It's a list of offerings. Offering after offering and gift after gift. So the purpose of this chapter is obvious, but the context is also important to notice. If I told you that every year in the middle of April, round about April 15th, I write a big fat check and I send it off to the government, nobody in the room is going to think, wow, he's very patriotic. No one's going to say, what a generous man who serves as the... No, no, those are taxes, right? Context is key. What are you doing with that money? When are you doing with that money and where is it going? The context is important. Notice in verse 1, there's a shift in time here. Chapters 1 through 6 have spoken of what happened on the second month of the second year of the time that the people came out of Egypt and were gathered at Sinai. But now in verse 1, we're told that we're stepping backward in time by about a month. Back to the day when the tabernacle was set up and when all of the things were consecrated. That means that if you wanted to follow the narrative chronologically, you would have to draw a straight line from the end of Exodus chapter 40 to the beginning of Numbers chapter 7. That's where this shows up. You'd have to go immediately from that moment that God's presence filled the tabernacle with smoke and glory to all of these men bringing their oxen and their carts. That's a pretty significant connection. It means... It tells us that this is not a tax. This is not an exaction. This is not an attempt to win God's favor with human generosity. This chapter is worship. And from the beginning of time, worship has always included giving our gifts to God. Think back to the beginning of the story, to the very beginning of uh, of personal property. The first family now outside of the garden of God, Genesis chapter 4, tells us that there were two brothers who both brought their offerings to the Lord. We know how the rest of it turned out, but that's what worship was. They were bringing their gifts to the Lord. At the close of the Bible, Revelation tells us about heavenly beings. 
who cast their crowns before the feet of the Lamb. It tells us about the tribes of the earth who bring in the wealth of the nations into God's kingdom. And at every point in between, the theme continues, worship always involves giving to God. That leads us, I think, to the question of why. Why is our giving something that we do? Why especially is it something that we do in the context of worship? Why don't we just lump our giving into things like bank draft fees and paying our taxes and just going along with all of those little uh, details of life? Why do we put it next to prayer and the Lord's Supper? It's probably a simple question. But you're aware I hope that there are many people who give to God for the wrong reasons. There are probably just as many who give to the Lord out of halfway good reasons. So there are some people who give to God because they feel guilty. Because they feel like they have to give to God. Maybe you're, you're visiting a new church for the first time. Maybe you're not even a believer yet, and and here comes this offering plate, and there stands the deacon waiting, and people are watching, and it feels like the thing to do. You don't want to be a freeloader, so you you give because you feel guilty. Or maybe you heard a sermon telling you that giving is one of the ways as a Christian that you express your thankfulness to God for his blessings. And maybe you're one of those Christians that overanalyzes a bit. You get anxious sometimes, and you wonder, every time the plate is passed, are you thankful enough? Have you given enough? Have you expressed your thankfulness to the Lord in proportion to his giving to you? The answer, of course, is no, you haven't, and no, you're not. Uh, But you might feel guilty about those things, and so you give. Some people give because they feel guilty. Other people give because giving feels good. Paul tells us that doctrine came straight from Jesus. It is better to give, more blessed to give, than to receive. And for those of you with the gift of generosity, so I'm told, uh, giving can feel pretty good. Giving can feel like you're accomplishing something. Like you're doing something significant for God and for his kingdom. You are furthering the work of the Lord in the world. All kinds of reasons. Some give because they're trying to be faithful. Some give because they think that God needs it. Some give because they look around them in the church and the need seems so large that if they don't give, nothing will ever get done. There are lots of answers to the question of why. Some of them are bad and some of them are halfway good. But at the end of the day, the primary reason why giving is a part of worship cannot be reduced to our guilt or to our joy or to our sense of contribution to the kingdom, our giving shouldn't be able to be reduced to anything that is ours at all. Instead, it must come down to God and to who he is. That's why Christians give. First and foremost, whatever other reasons we we slide in alongside there, the reason we give in worship is because of who God is. We give because God is worthy of our gifts. We give because the Lord is deserving of all of our praise and all of our submission and all of our sacrifice and all of our generosity. And his worthiness is independent of the effects that our gifts have on us and on our tiny little lives. That means that if even all of your financial gifts to God never meant that a single soul was converted, 
Even if you tithe your entire life and it meant that not a single mouth was fed, not a single second of joy ever entered your heart for the thrill of being a generous giver, even if none of those things ever happened, your gifts to God would still be worth giving. Why? Because God is worth receiving them. Because your gifts to God are an act of worship. In the Bible, the term that's most normally translated for us into the word worship means to bow down and to pay homage. So we find Exodus chapter 34, the Lord uh, hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. He descended, he proclaimed his name to Moses, and when Moses saw it, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshipped. That's what it means. That's the Hebrew idea. But the English word that we use, worship, actually comes from an Anglo-Saxon term that means worship or worthiness. And so worship is an act of ascribing worthiness to the object of our worship. When we worship, we are declaring how worthy the object is. And when we give to the Lord, that's what we're doing. We are confessing with our possessions that God is more worthy than our possessions. When we give to the Lord, we are confessing that man does not live by mammon alone. When we give to the Lord, we declare that he is more precious than the buying power we could have if we held on a little more tightly to that $20 in our pocket or that $20,000 in our bank account. Please understand me. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not making an appeal. I'm not asking you to give. I'm not telling you to give more. This is not a fundraising appeal. This is not a sales pitch. I'm just reminding you that all of our giving is worship because God is worth it. It's true, in fact. Here in this chapter, we see people giving things that are uh, good in other ways. Not just as a recognition of God's worthiness. They gave things that were useful. Here are all these Levites, and they have this equipment for the tabernacle to lug around from one campsite to another campsite, and wouldn't it be great if there were some ox carts to carry all that paraphernalia? It was useful. They saw a need, and they gave to that need. The same is true with all the bowls and the basins and the cups and all the sacrifices. The tabernacle has just been set up, and the priests are about to embark in a morning and evening routine of daily sacrifice. And here come all of these gifts, and with each gift, the congregation of Israel, all of the people, are gathering this sacrificial flock that was going to be very useful in the coming days and the weeks of Israel's worship. So it's true that their gifts were useful. It's true that their gifts were precious. Notice how much fine flour was given in a day when they were all eating manna. They didn't just give their silver and their gold, gold, they gave up the things that were precious. It's true that their gifts displayed tribal unity. They manifested their willingness to join together in what God was doing among them. Their giving was a good thing for many good reasons, but far more important is the fact that their gifts were given to the God who is worthy. Doesn't it strike you as strange that the New Testament tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. 
Didn't you ever wonder why God and the Holy Spirit did not inspire Paul to use a different adjective? Right? Some pastors might want you to think, God loves a sacrificial giver, so give and give and give until it hurts. Scriptures don't tell us that God loves a sacrificial giver. The scriptures don't tell us that God loves a discerning giver or a thoughtful giver or a mission-minded giver or a giver with very deep pockets. All those things might be good, but God says he loves a cheerful giver. That is, God loves one who rejoices in the one they're giving to, who is cheered by the thought of the Lord with whom they have communion. Someone who gives is a recognition that the Lord is worth it. So as you consider the joy of worship, don't forget the gifts that we give. Don't forget the fellowship that we share. That's our second point. The fellowship that we share in worship. Now, at the center of our text uh, that we read today, there are five little verses that punch well above their weight. That's because you notice that chapters 7 and 8 are largely filled with offerings and details and rituals that happened out there in the full sight of all the people where everybody could see what was going on. And yet in the middle, we have these five little verses that take us behind the veil, inside the curtain of the tabernacle, where nobody but Moses and Aaron saw what was going on. And it tells us what's happening, these spiritual realities behind the scenes, if you will. It shows up in two snapshots. The first, chapter 7, verse 89. We read that when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. And it spoke to him. This is significant for at least two reasons. First, the tabernacle is now completed and God is meeting with his people in the midst of the assembly. Previously, God met with the people, but he met with them on the top of Mount Sinai, or as Exodus chapter 32 tells us, in another tent that was set off, it says, outside the camp, far off from the camp of the people. While the tabernacle was being constructed, that's where Moses used to go. He used to have to get away from the people and away from the assembly to go and meet with the Lord far off, we're told. But now, for the first time, God is among his people. Secondly, this is important because the Lord is speaking to Moses from above the mercy seat. If you remember your Old Testament details, you remember the construction of the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, whichever you'd like to call it. Inside this wooden box covered in gold were the two tablets of God's law, with his commandments for his people written in on them. And that box was covered with a flat gold-plated lid called the mercy seat. We sang today from Psalm 99 about God enthroned above the angels. There was a visual representation of that in the mercy seat and these two statues of, of cherubim on the top, angels with outspread wings. And there was never an image of God, but rather an image of where he met his people at the mercy seat. And it was there on the mercy seat that Aaron would enter into the Holy of Holies once per year on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice to purify the people so that the Lord would continue to dwell among them. It's about fellowship, and it's about communion. 
And it's also above the mercy seat that the Lord promised Moses back in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. This is what the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 25, verse 22. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That means that Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, is a fulfillment text. It means that what the Lord has spoken, he is now doing. It means all that he's promised for the fellowship of his people, he is now bringing into fruition. He's meeting his people to lead them from the center. He is shepherding his sheep above the blood-stained reminder of forgiveness and fellowship. That's the first snapshot that we find. The second comes in the opening verses of chapter 8. You can get the basic sense by reading the first two verses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. The same details repeated in verse 3, this idea that the light shines forward, in front of the lampstand. You may know better than I do, Uh, that appropriate lighting is always the finishing touch for any interior decorating scheme. But that seems oddly specific, doesn't it? That, That these lights are not supposed to just shine in any old direction. It's not just so that you can see inside the tabernacle when you go in. They are they are unidirectional, we could call them. They are to give light in front of the lampstand. This was the seven-branched menorah made out of pure gold that Moses was commanded to build. And the description here fits the description in Exodus chapter 25. There it said, the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. At this point, you should be asking, what was in front of the lampstand that was so important the Lord needs to repeat three times in two books? that that's where the light was supposed to be headed. And the answer of what is in front of the lampstand is the table for the bread of presence. Now, if I've lost you in the details by now, I want to encourage you to find one of our elementary school students, any of them who have been in Sunday school, because they studied this year the layout of the tabernacle, and they can tell you that inside the tabernacle there was the lampstand, and across from the lampstand there is uh, this gold-plated table. And on that table, once every Sabbath, 12 new loaves of bread made of fine flour were brought into God's presence. They were laid there as a covenant, as as a reminder of the 12 tribes of God's people. And the Lord says, make sure the light in the holy place shines upon those loaves. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that the previous chapter ended with a promise and a prayer that the face and the the light of the Lord may shine upon you. That God may lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, you people who are in his presence and called by his name. Now, inside the tabernacle, where nobody else could see, the shining face of that great benediction is pictured for us. And the sevenfold light of God shining on the twelve tribes of Israel. It happens within earshot of the sound of God's voice meeting them and leading them with his words and his wisdom. I hope 
But the parallel for our New Testament uh, worship is, is plain to see. These two pictures inside the tabernacle tell us the same spiritual reality. Not only are they, are they pulling back the curtain on, on what happened in worship three and a half thousand years ago for the people in Israel, they're pulling back the curtain on the spiritual realities that often remain unseen when we gather together in Christ's name. The Lord is the God who meets with his people. He speaks to us. He shepherds us. He gives us communion with himself through the blood of atonement provided in Jesus. The Lord is present with us when we come together in worship. It's true that that for every forgiven, redeemed believer, the, the Holy Spirit individually indwells that person. That's true. That every sinner who's been joined to Jesus receives the indwelling presence of God. But something else also happens when the church gathers in the name of Jesus. Then we lift our voices, then we bring our offerings, and we open our ears and our hearts to listen to what God has to say to us. And what happens when we gather in worship is that God dwells among us. Earlier this week, I was talking with a friend of mine. This friend is also a pastor. He's not a Presbyterian. Don't hold that against him. Uh, He's a very faithful man and has been in ministry a little bit longer than I have. And and of all the years that I've known him, he's been a great encouragement to me and and in my family and my ministry. And we catch up every once in a while. He's one of my few seminary friends that I I still keep up with regularly. As we talked this week, he, he told me about some of the difficulties that he's been facing in his family some of the things afflicting him in his, in his ministry. It's nothing extraordinary from, from where most of us are. No, no immediate crisis, no, no burning uh, contention or overwhelming sorry, sorrow, just that slow, steady, grinding affliction that we all face sometimes. And from where my, my friend is or, or was, he shared with me how the, the particular muck of everything that he's been dealing with had brought him to the point of wanting to give up. Not give up the faith, but but certainly the ministry. And to make matters worse, his wife was right there in the same place with him. They were exhausted. And then he told me that his church leadership had, had found out, and they knew what he was going through, and so they encouraged him to take some time away. They, they told him, and they, they told his wife, uh, and they, they sent him to a Christian conference. This is a strange thing that we do with pastors, by the way. When they get burnt out with church and ministry, we send them to go sit in church for a while. But they did that. They went to this Christian conference. They had some time away. And he got to sit and worship with his wife. They both got to be ministered to for a change. And he said that somewhere in the middle of the week, when some preacher he'd never heard of was preaching some text he didn't expect much out of. He said, God showed up. He said it tongue-in-cheek. He even went back and emphasized it so that I knew his theology of worship is the same as my theology of worship. We know that God always shows up when his people gather together in his name, but for whatever reason, just for that week, in God's sovereign determination, God showed up. He showed up in a fresh way for my friend and for his wife. And he said he sat there weeping and he looked at his wife and he saw that she was weeping. And they both knew without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord was with them. 
He was leading them. He was filling them and meeting them with his mercy. He was giving them fellowship with himself in worship. That, by the way, is the most difficult thing, the most difficult aspect of our Christian worship to reduce to a line item and to print in our bulletin week by week. It is the hardest truth to convey to the person who has never experienced it, the idea that God shows up when his people gather together. So we wrestle with it in the language of Scripture as an attempt to explain what's actually happening. Psalm 22, verse 3 says, The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that when we come into worship, we pass through the veil in a sense. We come into contact with heavenly realities. It says, uh, we come to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. First Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that at the table of the Lord, we have real koinonia fellowship with our Savior. I suppose we could, we could pile up our proof text just as high as we want. One after the other. And the reality is, it's the kind of thing that until you believe it, you'll never understand it. Until you begin with faith that believes that there is a God who exists. And that this God who came down to speak with Moses in the tabernacle is the very same God who came down to inhabit our flesh and to carry our sin and to be raised again from the dead and three days later. Unless you start there, you will probably never believe that God could show up among his people on a sleepy Sunday morning looking at Numbers chapter 7. But once it gets into your bones, it's hard to shake, isn't it? Once you know it, that even here, even now, God's people share fellowship with him. Doesn't it fill you with joy in worship? It's part of the joy that we find together. It comes in the gifts that we give. It comes in the fellowship that we share. And though we press on, it comes in the cleansing that we need. Now, just a brief word here. Because most of chapter 8 is familiar territory. We've gotten to know our friends, the Levites, pretty well over the last few weeks. If you've been with us, if you haven't been with us, I apologize. They're on the website. Go listen. Uh, but we've gotten to know the Levites. We've gotten to know a lot about them over the last few weeks. And so a lot of what we find in chapter 8 is, is familiar. We've already learned, for example, as chapter 8 tells us, that through the ordeal of the Passover, the Lord chose for himself, he claimed the Levites for himself in place of all the firstborn of the people of Israel. Okay. We've already heard about the work that they were required to do and heard it broken out into their different tribes and their families. We've even already learned that at the age of 50, Levites were required to take an early requirement, or retirement. Excuse me. What we have not seen so far with the Levites is this cleansing ritual that the Lord commands as a way of setting the Levites apart for their service. And that is the primary message of this chapter. You notice that there is a summary command in verse 6. Verse 6, take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. And then at the end, you notice a summary report. Verse 21, and the Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes and Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord and Aaron made atonement to cleanse them. 
And in between those two points, almost everything else in the chapter has to do either with the how or the why of this cleansing that God said the Levites had to endure. That means that the entire chapter is all about being clean in the eyes of the Lord. It's all about being purified in order to be acceptable and useful for living service and sacrifice in God's kingdom. So there is this ritual God gives to the Levites. The ritual comes in two phases. There's an outward ceremony and there is a spiritual sacrifice. The outward ceremony uh, involved a bath and a bit of laundry and a very extensive haircut. It is almost exactly the same procedure given to Levites, I'm sorry, to, to lepers who had been healed of their leprosy. Shaving the body especially was, was to make as clean a break as visually possible with their former life of impurity. A fresh start in the Lord, if you will. And then there is this spiritual sacrifice, and it's built on the foundation of substitution. That too came in two parts. First, the Levites were substituted for the Israelites, and then the bulls were substituted for the Levites. Look at verses 10 and 12. Verse 10, when you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the heads of the Levites. Verse 12, then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls. And you shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And we know what this gesture means. This is not an ordination ceremony. This is a sacrifice. This is substitution. Actually, there were two sacrificial groups in this chapter. One of them had to die and the other gets to live, but they're both given over completely to the Lord and they both take the place of another party who deserved to be where they ended up. It's substitution. And by performing this ritual in full view and with full participation of the people of Israel, did you hear how many times that phrase came up? The people of Israel, the people of Israel, the people of Israel... By performing this ritual with the full participation of the entire nation, the message is clear. The message is, it is not enough to go through the outward motions of worship alone. It is not sufficient to bring your offerings and sing your songs and listen to a sermon here and there without having been washed. Washed on the outside and far more importantly, washed On the inside, the message was that there is no fellowship with the God who is worthy of worship if you have not been cleansed of the sin that separates you from His holiness. Plenty of people try, don't they? All throughout the age of Israel, we saw it. You can go back and read the Chronicles and and all the other narratives and the prophets. People are still trying today. I'll go to that church service. I'll say that thing. I'll do that that ritual. I'll perform that such and such. I'll give of my tithes and my offerings. There's a problem in Isaiah's day. It was the message that Isaiah had in his very first chapter of his prophecy. The Lord says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? Bring no more vain offerings. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, he says. There are some who are trying to game the system. 
trying to exchange the outward ritual for inward purity, but Isaiah says it's all vanity and weariness. It is worship that is worse than useless. Why? Because your hands are unclean. Because the blood of your iniquities witnesses against you. Because you're going through the motions, but you've never been washed. And because your sins, he says in chapter 59, have made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear you. And yet, going back to chapter 1 of Isaiah, he holds out hope. Come now, he says. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In other words, there is fellowship to be found, even for the impure. There is atonement to be made even for the sinners. There is joy to be experienced in the worship of the Lord. And it doesn't come by just giving more. It doesn't come by doing better. It doesn't come by seeking out ever more impressive outward external spiritual experiences such that you can walk into a room and practically put your finger on whether or not the Holy Spirit is there among God's people. True joy of worship comes in cleansing comes in knowing the one who came to take your place. It comes through faith and the sacrifice who tasted death so that you could live. Real joy in worship comes when you believe in the Son of God who brings sinners near. The one, John says, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because apart from him, there is no true worship. Apart from him, there is no joy in song. There is no truth in prayer. Apart from him, all our offerings are a weariness. But in him, we are accepted. In him, we find fellowship with the Father. And in him, we can be cleansed. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for this a picture of cleansing and worship. We pray that you would make us living sacrifices through Jesus Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice for us. Help us, O oh Lord, to trust in him. Give us faith in his name. Cleanse us from every iniquity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.